As the world confronts the coronavirus, PreserveCast is pleased to bring you special content all this week focused on preservation, health, and community revitalization, topics that are timely and optimistic. Each special episode comes from an event we've held over the past few years and speakers who come from a wide variety of backgrounds and disciplines. In today's episode, we'll hear a lecture from Dr. Mimi Naran, who presented Preserving History, Promoting Health at the 2018 Preservation Maryland Statewide Historic Preservation Conference, hosted at the University of Maryland. Dr. Mimi Naran is a principal associate at the Health Impact Project, a collaboration of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trusts. Enjoy this special episode and stay strong because together we will get through this. So without further ado, I would like to introduce um, our next speaker, um, who is Mimi Naran. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of her background. So she's done lots and lots of work. And actually, I've known Mimi for quite a while because through Edra. So we knew each other there first. Um, but Mimi is a principal associate at the Health Impact Project, which is a, collab- a collaboration with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust. The goal of the National Health Impact Project is to reduce health inequities and improve the health of all people by ensuring that health is a valued consideration as public policy. Dr. Narayan is directing the project's strategic initiative that assesses the relationship of climate change and health and specifically tribal health. The relevant nature of Mimi's work and its potential impact on communities has attracted national and international interest and recognition. And I've seen a lot of Mimi's work and I've been very impressed. And I think it has a lot of potential for relevance for the work that everybody here does. So I'd like to give a hand to Mimi. Welcome up. Um, I wanted to start with a uh, short public service announcement. I do, um, I am under the weather slightly, so if I'm coughing, please close your ears. I will try to move the mic away. I don't want to blow your eardrums out. Um, But with that, um, I'm going to start with a story. So thank you, first of all, Jeremy, for the introduction, and I really appreciate um, everybody being here and and for inviting me to speak. Um, When I was a health impact assessment practitioner in Phoenix, Arizona, I was asked to do a health impact assessment on a historic public housing redevelopment. So as any architect or planner um, does, the first thing I proposed was a site visit. So I go on this site and I'm walking the site. And I notice broken sidewalks. I notice some potholes on the street. I notice brown lawns that clearly were once green. Um, But as I keep walking on the site, I get this absolutely putrid smell of trash. There's dead animals mice, rats, maybe even dogs. And then this deafening noise, and it's a constant. White noise from traffic on a freeway nearby. There's this sputtering and hissing of these 18-wheelers that are clearly breaking and going and breaking and going. 
on this freeway. And then something even louder. I can't even hear myself as the jets fly right above my head, low to the ground, as they're landing on the airport, right next to this housing, pretty much. There's, of course, rust stains on the walls of the exterior of these houses. There are entranceways that have unscreened screen doors. And there's cracks all along the foundations. And yet, at our first workshop and meeting at this community, a hundred of the residents came and said, yes, we want to stay. Yes, we want this site redeveloped. This is our home. That's a story of place attachment. <clears throat> City officials came to this meeting and were completely befuddled. Why? Why do you want to stay here? There's nothing here. And the residents explained that their children were born here. Some of them had had their first dates in the park on this site. Some of them had said their last goodbyes to beloved grandparents. This was home, and this is where they would stay. Was this place making them sick? Oh, indeed. But they still wanted to stay. Can't move that freeway but they still wanted to stay. So what do you do with places like that? What do you do with places that have, that are old places, as Jeremy said, that have significance, that have deep connections and tell the stories of the interaction between the people and the places over time, but they are really not affording health for the people that are there. So that's what I'm going to talk about today, but I'm going to talk first a little bit about what is the health impact assessment as a tool. So um, as Jeremy Kennedy said, I work for the Health Impact um, uh, Project, and we are a collaboration of the Robert Johnson Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust with the goal of um, lifting up health as central to decision-making at the state, local, federal, um, regional level in all decision-making. Um, we work across sectors of education, transportation, housing, community development, criminal justice, you name it, wherever decisions are made. Um, so uh, my background is an architect. I'm an architect and a planner by training. Um, and then somewhere along the way, as I was starting my doctoral work, I got very excited about environmental design um, and uh, sort of found my way working at the intersection of health and the built environment, and here I am, having worked on that exact topic for the last 15 years. So at the Health Impact Project, we do a lot of things. We do place-based grant making, um, but more than just place-based grant making that 
supports um, more health impact assessments across the country. We also do a lot of research and evaluation of said health impact assessments to see if they have any effect or if they really support the health of the communities in which we're doing those. Um, we also scale our work to change the way that organizations, specifically large organizations, do business um, in order to integrate health and health equity into decision making. And we work on emerging strategies that um, Jeremy alluded to, uh, such as right now, um, the work we're doing um, addresses climate change and health as well as um, uh, tribal health um, in, in the country. So I keep saying health. And no, I'm not just talking about diabetes numbers or heart disease factors. When I'm talking about health, we see health with the broader definition of health as the World Health Organization defines it. And it really is about all of the social, economic, and physical um, environment that affords both our health behaviors but also affects our health. Um, I love this slide because it's always amazing to me that 88% of, um, of, of money is spent on medical services, meaning healthcare, and yet we do so little to support the environment, which is a primary driver of health, and, and change that environment in order to support health. The other piece that I want to talk about um, that was in sort of our mission statement is equity. Um, we, of course, specifically deal with health equity, but we, when we talk about equity, I want to make a clear distinction between equality and equity. Equality is about everyone having the same resources to succeed, but equity is really about everyone having what they need in order to succeed, and that's very different because we know that systems and policies and, and programs affect different populations differently. And so you will see as I go through the study of um, that public housing, how um, different policies have affected that population differently and that's why they are where they are today. So the one tool that we have in our toolbox in order to integrate this um, health, if you will, into decision-making processes is um, a health impact assessment. And what is that? Well, it's basically a very structured, systematic approach of assessing sort of baseline conditions of a um, community, for example, if you're talking about redevelopment, and then uh, understanding what the impact will be if a proposal whether it's a redevelopment, whether it's a program, a change, or a policy change, goes into effect. Um, oh, I'm sorry, didn't mean to do that. <laughs> and, um, and then we develop recommendations in order to mitigate negative health effects from that proposal and support um, positive health as an outcome of that, whatever the intervention may be, whether it's a change in policy, a program, or a project. Uh, sorry, that keeps going there. Um, and then hopefully we can track and monitor and evaluate what that did to the health of that community. Um, that map is really just a, a snapshot of the over 400 now um, health impact assessments that have been done in this country on various decision points just to give you an idea of where it's being done. 
Um, there are several in Maryland. Unfortunately, most of them are uh, located in the Baltimore area. Um, and a few that are in, outside of that. Um, but across the country, there have been many, and across many, many sectors. Um, as you can see, a large majority of them are um, have been done in the built environment and at the, a local level, so decisions at the local level. Um, however, you know, we, we continue to work on federal level decisions and state level as well. So, to give you um, a continuation of the story that I started with, the public housing I was talking about is the Colfield Lamarillo Public Housing in Phoenix, Arizona. It's located in South Phoenix, which is where I was prior to coming to the BC area. Um, as you can see from those statistics, it's uh, quite a um, neglected, uh, geographically isolated community. Um, it's um, basically this site right here, uh, which was built in 1954 in order to house um, families of Vietnam veterans um, that, uh, you know, when people had gone to war, for the Vietnam War, and it was supposed to provide them an environment of comfort, connection, and prosperity. Uh, by 1968, this three-way had been developed. The two arterial streets that you see there already existed, but had been paved over time um, and gotten busier and busier by the time this freeway came around. Uh, so the freeway and those arterial streets nicely cocooned this this public housing into a um, into a little uh, corner, if you will. Um, a school was developed by 1985 just south of the community in order to support, by 1985 it had become a public housing site, so to support the children that were on in that community. And then by the 1990s, all of that shaded area that you're seeing right now became light industrial. So, I don't know about prosperity or connection or health of that community. 709 students, I mean, sorry, residents out of which 58% were children, 412 or something were children. So we're talking about um, under the age of 18. Um, and as you can see, household, uh, the median income being significantly lower than the county, the state, um, and of course the country. Uh, to top that, they have one grocery store nearby. Of course, there was no economic development happening here because nothing, there was nothing, you know, to draw economic development. So this one grocery store, can anybody guess what the primary product sale is? Yeah, alcohol. Yeah. Alcohol, primary sale. And then the second is packaged um, food, meaning uh, snacks that are incredibly unhealthy. There was produce, but it's produce that certainly none of us here would consider produce. Most of it rotten because there was no proper facilitation of refrigeration, and folks just did not know how to keep that up. 
Um, the closest grocery store is a... Yes, excellent, 10 points. Walmart, 2.3 miles away. This community is predominantly uh, made up of non-car owners, car sharers. So can you imagine walking 2.3 and 2.3 back with groceries? So some more images of what it looked like on site. Um, these are the nicer images. Um, and the park right there, we're talking, the, oh, sorry. The park right there um, is unshaded, and we are talking 120 degrees in Phoenix in the summer when the kids are home and on vacation. Um, vacation meaning staying home. So that's state of the housing. But that's not enough, right? Because it's also right next to that freeway. So it's within, well, more than 50% of the site is within the air pollution zone from I-17. And the school is 118 meters away from the center of that freeway. With several other hazardous material and waste sources around, such as a water recycling plant, such as a, um, uh, landfill, and several other um, industrial, large industrial sites to the north. And those jets I was talking about, that's the airport map, and that's where the site is. Not quite in the litigation zone, so FAA didn't need to do anything about it, per se. Um, but loud enough that there is an impact. So what do we do with that? That's all baseline conditions, as we call it in the health impact assessment. So what do we do with that? So now there's a decision, right? The decision was, we'll redevelop, but redevelopment means so many things. There's all kinds of design decisions that go into redevelopment. So what you do with a health impact assessment is take the baseline conditions and then look at every decision that needs to be made through the lens of what the literature might say, how, what, how that would impact the health of the community. Um, and when I say health, I mean those social determinants of health. Access to healthy foods, access to safe um, housing, access to transportation, um, access to a safe environment, safe streets, um, social cohesion. How are those affected based on the literature, based on data analysis that we did, which is just number crunching, and then the stakeholder input. So a big component of health impact assessment in order to afford equity is to include stakeholders in the decision-making process. So we did this with all of the stakeholders on, at the table. So residents, the industrial site, um, you know, owners of the businesses, um, local, other local business owners, and anybody that has stake in this community, other community-based organizations around the city, the county. And then we assess what the likelihood is of that impact happening, and what populations will be affected by that impact. 
And we do that through sort of looking at the rigor of the literature, the rigor of the stakeholder input, and the rigor of the data analysis. So it's a very sort of scientific-driven process, but with a mixed-method approach. What that means is that when we then get to recommendations, you know, we can say this as academics, what does that mean to the residents? Because we are including them in the decision-making process. So we create visuals, give them an idea of what does this look like. We came up in this case with 61 recommendations that were very technical points. So we came up with design um, prototypes to say this is what it might look like. That has two purposes. One is to allow residents to both understand the data and the implication of what the change might be and advocate for. And then two, to allow residents as well as other stakeholders to be part of the decision-making process to provide input that is most prioritized by them. Here's another snapshot of uh, prototypes that we drew up for what it looks like. Everybody's visual. That's what I've learned. We redeveloped and redesigned the park. Initially, the developer wanted to just replace the um, play equipment, but it's still going to be 120 degrees in Arizona. That's not going away. So we redesigned it, and um, it was um, accepted with lots of push from the community itself. Um, and as I said, we took equity into account. So both in the process and in the recommendations that we developed. So we did provide residents with knowledge. That's the first step of equity. Because partly you can be left out of decisions if you don't understand what decisions are being made about you. So um, we also created a uh, facilitated sort of a bi-directional learning platform. So we included residents in our steering committee and called them our local experts. And uh, they sat down with the environmental assessment um, expert and talked about technical things at a layman level, if you will. And then we also um, provided recommendations, off those 61 recommendations, several of them were about um, continuing um, sort of measures to ensure equity in future decision-making processes, including creating a leadership program for residents, creating a community council, because those who can have voice can only have a voice if they're invited to the table. And so we um, challenged them to be at the table. So what happened? I know everybody's anxious to hear. What happened? What happened was that this site, first of all, um, used um, the National um, Historic Track Tax Credit um, as part of the funding as part of the funding lever, and was designated on the National Historic Registry for public housing, um, 
But basically, overall, the project received $44 million. This is from an actual um, website um, that published the story based on the recommendations that were adopted by the developer. And out of the 61 recommendations, not all of them were to the developer. Some of them were to the developer um, because of the architect that had to translate this into design terms. Um, and then some of them were to the city, some of them were to the county. Um, and we had an unprecedented cooperation because between city and county, which had never happened in Phoenix before. Why? Because residents took those, those findings that we showed them and the knowledge that we imparted to them about their own health and went to leadership, to their um, local representatives, and advocated for themselves. And were able to move political will in a way that really afforded this to happen. Suddenly, everybody wanted to be part of it from the local council member to the county commissioner, everybody was excited. And some were up for re-election, so that happened. There <laughs> um, we go, our local council member um, came to the inauguration of this one of the intersections where there was no crosswalk. Uh, by the way, that school, there was no crosswalk to get from one part of the neighborhood to the other, so kids would run across the street. And during our study, Two children, eight and ten, were killed crossing them during our study. And, and still, we had to, uh, you know, push, if you will, to get the city to do a pedestrian study on that intersection. But yes, this, this, um, this is the, uh, the hawk light that was put in. If you know what hawk light is, it's an, it's an activated uh, light, crossing light by pedestrians. And then um, the park just got completed in April of this year um, and has been has most of the features other than the water feature um, received a lot of funding from several uh, private uh, entities such as Lowe's and Home Depot and other folks, um, which by the way, residents advocated for. Um, this is the new housing, uh, very close to the prototype that we were able to build for them. This is the community center. Initially, when the park design was um, was being redeveloped, or was being thought of, uh, as I said, the developer really wanted to replace the play equipment and just wanted to put fresh paint in the, in the clubhouse. But this was the historic heart. This was going to be the place for social cohesion, because what I didn't tell you is that we looked at all of those health parameters, the biggest one that came up as a priority for residents was social cohesion, because there was such a lack of social cohesion in that community of just 700 people because there was no place to be. There was no place to be. The park was not a place you could be, given Arizona's heat. And there was no lighting, it was hard for people to walk outside, people were scared. And yet, that, this community center at the park is the 
driver for this community to be able to come together. We created an artifact of identity. So this was designed by residents with residents. And they created a, a beautiful mural with an artist and a sculpture um, because they had lost their sense of identity. This became one of the main features of the park because they wanted to be able to tell the stories, those stories that made the history of this place. Other health outcomes, like I said, social cohesion, but we also realized that the sense of self-efficacy. We proposed a community garden in the park, which right now is being built. Um, and there were at least 50 master gardeners living in this community. And they felt like they had purpose again. Older, you know, gentlemen and, and uh, women that really felt like oh, I can go out and do something in my community. And this is something we gathered from case studies that we did after this, the health impact assessment was done, just to understand what did it do for people. Now, did it change their cardiovascular numbers and diabetes rates? I'm not sure. It certainly changed something about their asthma rates. The kids in this community, as I said, 412 kids, has an, had an asthma rate of 51% as compared to 7.5 at the count. So it did, it did change some in terms of respiratory illness, but we're still tracking those. This has just been completed. Um, some other examples quickly to show you how a health impact assessment fits into sort of this preservation work and why it would benefit um, to have health impact assessments as part of preservation work. Um, uh, this is one of my favorite examples. Um, this is a equipment light rail station that was a tran uh, transit-oriented development in Houston, Texas. Um, the development or this, of this uh, light rail station was proposed and um, the folks that were doing the health impact assessment actually wanted to do it in this neighborhood because Preservation Texas had made this neighborhood the most, one of the most endangered places. I've never heard of a place being endangered until I saw this health impact assessment, but um, you know, I'm not a preservationist myself, so maybe, maybe y'all have better um, familiarity with that term. But what they did is engage the community um, in this light rail redevelopment and or this uh, light rail station uh, installation. And when they did, uh, the first thing that came out was, we are an, uh, an old community and, and we have been here for years. We're a Hispanic community, but our voices and our traditions have never been lifted up. And so a local, the recommendation by the health impact assessment was to create a his, historic and art-based council um, to support that gap. And uh, a local artist um, joined this, um, who's also a resident, by the way, of this neighborhood, um, heard of this, 
and basically engage the community in coming up with a design that would facilitate at least a place for that. So the design reflects a lot of the, the important people, quotes, places that, um, that are part of this, this neighborhood. Um, a second quick example might sound familiar if, you're, if you know about um, Standing Rock. Does anybody not know about Standing Rock? Um, so this is a CO2 pipeline, slightly different. Um, that was proposed in Albuquerque in 2015 by um, Kinder Morgan um, to run through Torrance County. Uh, this is, and I'm going to have to refer to my notes because I don't remember the number of sites that were there, but it was a historic um, places. There's already uh, uh, several places that are part of the, uh, the National Historic Registry Register. Um, so dating back to the 17th century, it includes the three sites of the Salinas Pueblo Mission National Monument. And it would run through those sites, including 12 other both historically and culturally significant sites of the population that live in this county. Um, health impact assessment was done. It literally revealed one of the, one of the outcomes that uh, was that this project, if it were to go forward, would trigger historic trauma. I'm sure everybody's familiar with historic trauma or what that is. So the trigger historic trauma as one component, which means severe uh, psychological and mental health effects on the population of this county. And because while Kinder Morgan has not actually acknowledged that, but while the results of the health impact assessment were coming out, Kinder Morgan withdrew their proposal. Um, a um, project on the horizon that I would uh, want to leave with you as I am concluding is a project we are very excited about at the Health Impact Assessment. I mean, sorry, Health Impact Project, which is a health impact assessment uh, that is being done by the city of Natchez, Mississippi. If anybody's familiar with where that is has tremendous history, both uh, with positive and negative affect, um, depending on who you ask. Um, but it is certainly rich with history. And the city of Natchez, um, I want to say along with the Mississippi State Department of Health, is conducting this health impact assessment in order to um, understand how um, the registered designation Sorry, I'm going to have to report my notes because I am not familiar with the terms. Um, registered designation will affect the health of this community. And by health, I mean they're uh, looking at social cohesion. They're looking at uh, community context, safety, economic development, um, workforce development, tourism. And um, this project is something that we have just funded. So they're just starting out. 
Um, it's very exciting, and uh, I keep looking out for that. It's going to be completed potentially by the end of 2019. The health impact assessment will be. Um, and then recommendations will be given both to the city of Natchez, um, but also to the um, preservation entity in Natchez, Mississippi. Um, a quick note, I know you're wondering why is there NEPA here, but a quick note on NEPA because the National Environmental Protection Agency, or Act, National Environmental uh, Policy Act, sorry, um, is something that is triggered by many of the projects that we work on, policies that we work on, um, as is the same for you. Um, so I don't know if you have heard, but yesterday we received um, some word that there is a potential for um, a reform. After, I mean, since 1968, there hasn't been any reform of, of, the, of NEPA. Um, there's a potential reform that is going to be um, put forth by this administration. Um, and that will that there will be a public comment period opening. Now, um, if you're aware of the executive order that came out last year in 2017, early, right after the administration change on streamlining NEPA, um, I think there are specific implications for that to what this means when the public comment period comes out. Um, either early, early next week. It was supposed to come out either today or early next week. I'm not exactly sure when it will come out, but this is what we heard from CEQ. Um, but we have been working for a long time to integrate health and health impact assessments into NEPA processes, particularly in order to um, sort of um, mitigate some of the litigations that have come up on the back end um, for environmental review processes because their consideration of health is so narrow. And so we've been working with our friends at the EPA to try to get that moved forward. I don't know if this is an opportunity to make that happen through this reform process or if that's sort of um, putting this on the back burner. But I guess we'll find out. But I just wanted to make folks aware in case um, this affects your work, which I believe it does. Um, and finally, I know I'm the only thing standing between your Friday evening drink, um, so I'm going to make this quick, a quick call to action. I, what you do is, is preserve the history of places, the stories of the places and the interaction of people and place. And what we do is try to make places healthy. Why should these be on opposite ends of each other? How can we work together to make sure that the places in which the histories are made, good or bad, and the stories are told, are also places that are healthy for the people that live? That's my call to action. Thank you so much for having me.